Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Juan Dominguez-Bandala. He's a director of stem cell development for translational research. He's also a research associate professor of surgery at the Diabetes Research Institute. It's all part of the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. So Juan, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm doing fine. Thank you very much for the invitation. Yeah, tell me about your research. Uh, well, I work on finding a cure for type 1 diabetes. Um, that's uh, everything we've been doing for uh, since I joined the Diabetes Research Institute of the University of Miami in 2001. And uh, uh, the reason I'm working on this, this is a very serious disease, an autoimmune disease, in which what happens is that the immune system of the body uh, thinks that the beta cells that make cancer in the pancreas are growing, so it kills them. And this happens usually early in life, and that's why it's also called juvenile diabetes. And it's a much more severe condition than type 2 diabetes, uh, because these patients, unlike um, what happens with type 2 diabetes patients, they need insulin to survive. Um, even though it's also less frequent than type 2 diabetes, we still have between 2 and 3 million patients just in the U.S. alone. So it's a very serious and widespread uh, disease. So um, the problem is that for type 2 diabetes, there's medication that improves uh, the ability of insulin to the job. The problem with type 1 diabetes is that you don't have any cells that make insulin, and therefore you rely on insulin to survive. And that's, uh, that's a problem in the short and the long term, uh, simply because the body cannot actually mimic what the pancreas does. I mean, the, the insulin that you take cannot mimic what the pancreas does very accurately. And in the long term, it brings about many complications and include blindness, uh, amputations, uh, kidney failure, and many other things. So it's a very serious disease to live with. So in regards to the pancreatic beta cells, what are you working on? Well, everything that we are doing at the DRI, the Diabetes Research Institute, is looking for a cure. And a cure has to come from two different aspects. First of all, since this is an immune, uh, an autoimmune disease, you have to do the immune modulation uh, to stop immunity, which is the underlying cause of the disease. So... Over the past 20 years, I would say that we've made tremendous progress at understanding how autoimmune diabetes develops. And now we have a very good idea of the branches of the immune system that are um, involved in attack and the ones that we need to suppress and the ones that we actually need to boost in order to restore the balance that usually a healthy person has. So this fine-tuning of the immune system is at the core of many uh, new therapies that we are working on and trying to develop, and we have a couple uh, recently approved by the FDA uh, clinical trials that are hopefully going to start very soon. So that's the main thing that we have to do at, at, at this point is to stop immunity from happening. And we, have a, we think that we have a very good idea of how to do that. But at the end of the day, even if you do that, uh, you also need to replace the beta cells that have been lost. And um, in that regard, actually, our center, we call transplantation. And this is a procedure by which we can... Um, the beta cells that make insulin from a donor and then transplant them into a patient. So every time we get an organ, we process the organ and we extract the cells that make insulin. And these cells are clustered in a small aggregate that we call islets, and that's why we call this islet transplantation. 
So we can put this islet into patients and they no longer require insulin in many cases. And it works wonderfully. I and mean, it has changed the quality of life of patients uh, tremendously. We have patients who have been insulin-free for a decade or longer. But the problem is that first, these patients need immune suppression because otherwise the islet will be rejected. And suppressing the immune system is never a good thing. I mean, you have an immune system for a reason uh, to keep at bay infection and cancer. And what you want to do is to immune modulate the immune system, as I mentioned before, and not just bring it down. But uh, the other problem, and this is the more pressing one, is that in addition to having to use immune suppression, the problem is that we only have a handful of organs for, for eye transplantation every year. So if we have two to three million people with type 1 diabetes in the U.S., and we only get a few of, of these organs for transplantation every year, there's a huge gap um, that we have to, to uh, somehow um, bridge uh, for all these people to benefit from this treatment. So uh, we and others have been working on stem cells to address uh, what we call the supply problem. Uh, some stem cells have the ability to multiply uh, almost in an unlimited manner. So if you start with 1 million, the following day you have 2 million and then 4 million and 8, they grow exponentially. And uh, we can grow billions of them in a matter of days. So once they've grown to the point that you have enough to transplant a patient, you try to coax them to, to um, educate them to become insulin-producing cells. And there are already clinical trials going on that are looking at human embryo stem cells, for instance, for type 1 diabetes. Um, and these clinical trials are cells that uh, we are transplanting. We put them inside a small device, which is the size of a credit card. And that device is designed to protect them against the attack of the immune system. Now, the first round of clinical trials that were conducted in California were not successful, but there's a pipeline. And we are confident that if this one didn't work, the next one will, or the next after that will. So that's what we are working on, the cell supply aspect. In my lab in particular, we've been working on something that is a bit uh, different, but it's also aimed at the same goal, which is to get new beta cells in there. And we call it regeneration. So what we have discovered is that the pancreas contains a population of stem cells uh, inside the pancreas with the ability to give rise to new islets. Uh, but these cells are like dormant. They need to be awakened in patients. And what we have found is uh, we have found a drug that is actually a natural protein that is in your blood and mind. Uh, it's actually approved for other um, conditions by the FDA. And this drug can do just that, can reawaken these cells and they will grow inside the body and give rise to new beta cells. Where are you getting the, the population of stem cells? Are these like induced pluripotent stem cells or are they, where do they come from? What tissue type? Right. When, when I was talking about the cells that we are transplanting, the human embryo stem cells or induced pluripotent stem cells, they have different origins, but at the end of the day, they are pluripotent, which means that they can give rise to any cell type in the body and that you can proliferate them for a long time. So the original pluripotent stem cells were the embryonic stem cells, and those are obtained from um, in vitro fertilized embryos that are discarded or are, would be discarded unless you get the cells from them. And uh, that is progressively being seen of uh, induced pluripotent stem cells, which are cells that we make believe uh, that they are embryonic, when in reality they are cells from the skin or the blood that we can uh, coax to become embryonic-like. So those cells are less contentious because they don't come from an embryo, and um, you can get them from any patient. Um, you take a sample from the skin, and then you can reprogram these cells. Uh, you make them go back in time to a point where they believe to be embryonic, and then you do the same thing. You grow them, and then you differentiate them into better cells or whatever you, you want. The advantage being that they also come from the patient that you want to treat. So if you do this for a patient, that's the closest thing that you have to personalized medicine. These are not cells that come from someone else and will need immune 
uh, rejection drugs, these cells would not, wouldn't be rejected. And that's true for most diseases that we want to treat with stem cells, but not necessarily for type 1 diabetes. Because again, type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disease. And when you have autoimmunity, it doesn't matter whether the cells are yours or, or someone else's. If the cell is making insulin, it's going to be attacked and destroyed by the immune system. Even if it's a person's own cells? I mean, do, do people have a small amount of stem cells that, that differentiate into uh, beta cells naturally, or what does it look like? Well, what I was talking about is when you grow cells um, outside the body and then you put them inside the body again, right? So with induced pluripotent stem cells, think of a patient uh, who has type 1 diabetes and we take a sample from his or her skin, we reprogram those cells, they become embryonic, and they grow, and then when they grow, we differentiate them into cells that make insulin, right? And then we, the idea would be to put them back. That hasn't been done yet in patients, right? This is the, the, the pipeline that, that we have. Right now, we are transplanting cells that come from a different donor, like embryonic stem cells. But, you know, let's say that this is where we are aiming at. But what I was talking about before is that we have discovered that the pancreas of the patients, and of everybody actually, has stem cells within them, uh, the organ that can give rise to new beta cells. Now, these are not pluripotent stem cells, which means that you cannot grow them forever, and they cannot give rise to a liver or a brain or an eye. They can give rise only to new pancreatic cells. But you know, that's what we want for type 1 diabetes. And the good thing about these cells is that we have found that we don't have to take them out of the body and you know, grow them out and convert them into beta cells and put them back. We can think, we think that we can do this inside the patient, and we can do this using a drug uh, which is a protein that you and I have in the blood that proliferates, makes the cells proliferate and give rise to new beta cells inside the body of the patient. That's what we think is going to happen. And I think it's going to happen because we've been doing it in mice, and that's exactly what happens in mice. Having said this, many things that we have tried in mice that worked, curing type 1 diabetes, didn't work in humans later. We have cured type 1 diabetes in several hundred ways in mice, but uh, we haven't got one that works yet in, in humans, so obviously we have to take this with an enough salt. But the good thing is that these cells that we have identified, we didn't identify them in the mouse, we identified them in human teeth. We got them from uh, human cadaveric donors that, uh, you know, we got the cells from the pancreas, and we were able to pinpoint exactly the cells that we can stimulate to give rise to new beta cells. And, and we can see this happening before our very eyes in the lab. We can see how when you expose the tissues of the patient or the donor to uh, uh, BMP7, which is the name of the molecule that we are talking about, new islands start to grow. They pop up before your very eyes. So that's something that we are very encouraged to, to take to the clinic as soon as we can. So, okay, so you're able to get the cells to differentiate and then produce insulin, but you still have the problem of rejection. Are there different degrees of rejection depending on the source of the cells? That's a very good question. So obviously when you get cells that come from a different source, I think another donor, uh, there's a degree which is the strongest degree of rejection, which is uh, allo-rejection that comes you know, from a different donor. Therefore, you have to take drugs to prevent immune rejection. But then there's autoimmunity. And that's more subtle, but it's also more uh, pervasive and it's chronic. So um, what happens is that uh, you mentioned, you asked me before, if, even if the cells come from the same patient, if they would be rejected. And unfortunately, we think that's precisely the case. In the 80s, um, people were transplanted. I mean, there was a set of twins and one of them was diabetic and the other was not. And uh, they transplanted the islets from one twin into another hoping that, well, they have exactly the same genetic makeup. Uh, obviously, they shouldn't be rejected, right? Well, they were rejected very quickly. 
So it doesn't matter whether the islets are yours or someone else's. When you have autoimmunity, uh, your uh, you know immune system is already poised to attack and destroy anything that looks like a beta cell. So that requires to combat that. You can either completely uh, eliminate the response of the immune system. You can immune suppress the host, which is never a good thing. Or you can immune modulate the host, which means that you tinker with the immune system. You boost the cells of the arm that protects the islet, where, whereas you also put down the cells that, that will kill the islet, right? So we have, we're finding now ways to do this in a very accurate fashion that we weren't able to do before. We can uh, stimulate the cells of the immune system that are going to be protective while keeping the other ones at bay. And that's the idea of immune modulation and many clinical trials that we are pursuing right now. Now, there's also a new approach that has been described very, very recently, which is what we call the cloaking uh, of the cells. So we want to, in this, this case, we want to make the cells that you put in the patient to be invisible to the immune system. And you can achieve that by using some, you know, molecular fireworks that we can, uh, you know, discover. And basically the immune system will think that the cells that you're putting are cells when in reality they aren't. The problem with this is that if you're going to put something that comes from an embryonic stem cell or a pluripotent stem cell, it's never a good idea for the cells to be completely invisible to the immune system. Because what happens if one of these cells, um, instead of differentiating into a beta cell, uh, keeps undifferentiated and then it keeps proliferating inside the body, it may give rise to a tumor. Now, the tumors that occur as a result of this are called teratomas. They are not malignant tumors. They grow in place. But still, there are tumors, right? So you don't want to have an immune system that doesn't recognize those cells. You want to have a fully competent immune system that will get rid of any tumor cells that will form. So that's why we also, in my lab, actually, we are pursuing an alternative approach in which that's okay. You can make the cells invisible to the immune system, but then we are going to add a fail-safe mechanism inside the cells that you put uh, so that we can kill them if something goes wrong. And that's what we call suicide genes. So we equip the cells that we are putting inside uh, the host with uh, a set of suicide genes that will kill anything that keeps dividing after we put them inside the body, or even something that is not a beta cell. We also commit suicide. Yeah, why would you want to kill the ones that are making insulin? Do you think they could, no. would they turn cancerous and like proliferate out of control or go off mission? Or what no, no, precisely the ones that we want to keep are the ones that make insulin. The ones that make insulin are not going to be out of control. Once a cell becomes a beta cell, it doesn't proliferate anymore, it doesn't divide, and it's going to do insulin for as long as it lives. The ones that we want to kill are the ones that keep dividing, so these are not the beta cells, and the ones that become something else that is not a beta cell. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So when you transplant all these cells, I, I describe this to you in very, um, I don't know, it's, it's a cartoonish way, like we differentiate the cells and they become beta cells. That's not as clean as it sounds. I mean, we transplant cells that are mostly beta cells, but also contain many other cells that we don't know what they are. And because the protocols are not as efficient as to get 100% of, of a given population, right? So we fear that some of the cells that you are transplanting that are not beta cells may actually do something bad. And in this case, keep proliferating and form a tumor. So the system that we invented is one by which you can eliminate anything that is not a beta cell. Beta cells are okay. They are not going to um, do anything else. But if they were, actually, let's say that you get, a, you get a beta cell and down the line it misbehaves and becomes a tumor, we also have the means to kill it. Because at that point, it will reactivate a suicide gene that will take care of it um, in a clinical setting. So 
that's the fascinating approach that we have devised that we think is going to make safer all these transplantation approaches that we are pursuing right now. I guess the average person starts out with what, about a million beta cells? And has anyone looked longitudinally as people age, how many beta cells they have or they need in order to provide a proper insulin response? Well, that's a, a good question. I mean, no, nobody knows exactly how many beta cells we start with. And in fact, they keep um, expanding during the first years of life. And then at one point, they stop growing. Um, it's typically said that, um, or, or estimated that um, an adult may have about a million islets. Each, each islet has about 1,000 beta cells. So uh, about a million islets, right? So when you start to develop type 1 diabetes, you don't notice nothing. You don't notice anything for the first uh, few years because the destruction happens very progressively and still the residual beta cells can do the job. And, and you know, that can happen over years. So you may have only 10% of the beta cells that you should have uh, in, in an ideal situation and yet not, not develop symptoms, right? So there's an underlying process of destruction and the other ones are coping with the uh, demand until they are not sufficient and they die. Now, when we do a transplantation, we cannot, uh, it's not technically feasible to extract the 1 million islets from a donor. So in the best case scenario, we get 500,000 of the 1 million that you have to begin a pancreas, right? And when we transplant them into the patient, about 80% may die within minutes because of processes that involve, uh, you know, clotting and, and other things. So in many of these patients that we transplant and where we see reversal of diabetes, they may get only about 10% of functioning beta cells versus what they should have, yet they do their job, right? So you don't need the full complement, but it's good to have it because, you know, once you get that critical threshold and you have very few of them, they die because they simply cannot cope with the demand of the whole body. So that I hope that answers your question. Do we know, again, how many cells are needed in order to provide an adequate insulin response? Well, when we do, what we know is that when we do islet transplantation, 10% of the normal complement of islet cells that we have in, uh, in our body uh, is typically enough, at least for a while. And that would be 100,000 uh, islets. And each islet has about 1,000 beta cells. So you do the math. Wait a second here. So when you're, when you're creating these cells and differentiating them, you're creating just individual beta cells, but Normally, they're in an islet formation. Like, what is the structure of an islet if it contains a thousand of these cells? And how does the functioning yes. of individual cells and what kind of shape and what kind of orientation should they be in to mimic islet, islet cells? And I mean, it seems like uh, there's a whole structural component that maybe needs to be addressed. Yeah, that's a very good point. So, islets are actually uh, what we call mini organs because they have not only the beta cells that make insulin, they also have other cells that make other hormones such as alpha cells that make glucagon, which does the opposite of insulin. And you have other cells that do other, you know, make other hormones that, uh, in, in, you know, when you put them together, that regulates sugar uh, levels in the body in a very beautiful homeostatic manner. So you may argue that if you only generate beta cells, you are not getting the full picture, and that's a legitimate concern. Now, the good thing is that when we try to differentiate beta cells from stem cells, it's like nature intends for alpha cells to form as well. So you want to get beta cells, you also get some of the cells that make alpha cells, I mean, uh, that make glucagon as well. So what you're transplanting into the patients is actually looking very much like an islet in terms of the cells that you are putting in there, not only the beta cells, but also other cell types. Now, the structure, there's a lot of uh, debate about uh, whether structure is necessary. I know that 
it has uh, some influence because the structure of islets in, in pigs or mice is completely different than that uh, that we find in non-human primates and, in, and, and humans. So we think that the way that these cells arrange within the islet may have some influence in the way that they operate. However, uh, we don't have the degree of the exquisite organization that we have in a typical islet when we transplant these other cells that we differentiate from stem cells. Yet they seem to do their work to a relative extent. I mean, we don't get 100% function, but if we get 80%, that's good enough. And obviously, with the stem cells, the advantage is that you, you're not limited by the amount of cells that you are going to transplant. Uh, you can grow them for as long as you want, and once you have enough or plenty or 10 times more than you need, you can go ahead and differentiate them and put them into the body. But going back to the original question, yeah, you do generate other cells that are necessary, even even if you don't want them. Nature has it for you to get them, and, um, and uh, the structure may not be completely necessary, but I've, I've read works that um, are actually looking into this in more detail. They are, in fact, analyzing uh, the ultrastructure of islets from many different donors and trying to get a pattern that you may be able to replicate and mimic when it comes to designing these uh, islets that you can generate from stem cells. If beta cells are, are nestled inside an islet, I don't know, the immune response may be modulated completely, partially, it may be very different versus if they're just hanging out there. And then, oh, but they are not hanging. They are not hanging out. Or what I mean is that uh, when uh, when we transplant the cells, we are not transplanting single cells. We do aggregate them uh, before transplanting them. So in fact, they look very much like islets. But by the time that we transplant them, they are not simply hanging out in there. And we don't put them in in the uh, the bloodstream or anything like that. I mean, the the way that we've been transplanting the cells so far, the islets. Two islets, it's meaning the liver and not the pancreas because the pancreas is very complicated um, to transplant and it's actually a very delicate organ. The liver has been good enough for many, for many years, but it also has many complications. So we are moving away from the liver and now we're transplanting in the omentum, which is um, a fold of the peritoneum, which is highly irrigated and seems to be a very good place for the cells to, to graft. Uh, but uh, when we come to stem cells, we want to put them in a place uh, where you can retrieve them easily if something goes wrong or where you can replace them. And we're looking at the um, supercutaneous space, so transplanting them under the skin. But we don't transplant the cells to floating. I mean, we transplant uh, what looks and feels like real islands, right? So, and again, sometimes it's not a matter of us aggregating them willfully. I mean, this happens naturally. When you differentiate the cells, they they have it in themselves to rearrange in ways that resemble islets. So what you're transplanting is what, you know, basically uh, they are doing themselves this reaggregation into an like structure. What is an islet composed of? It's, it's not just beta cells, right? There aren't there other cell types that are in the mix? No, no, no. Islets have uh, uh, four different types of these four uh, types uh, of hormones. They have, uh, they make, uh, they have, you have cells that make insulin, the beta cells, you have cells that make uh, uh, glucagon, uh, which are the alpha cells, and then you have pancreatic polypeptide cells, and you have other cells that make other types of hormones. And the most abundant ones are the alpha and the beta cells. But you also get other things like, of course, endothelial cells that make the blood vessels. You also have neural cells in there. You have also supporting cells um, like fibroblasts and others. So it's like quite... Uh, uh, you know, in a way, it's a, that's why we call it a mini organ, uh, because it's, they are complex. And um, there are people who have found that if you transplant the cells, not just the beta and the alpha cells, but if you put them together with other cell types that may help support them, like mesenchymal stem cells or even uh, blood vessels, endothelial stem cells, they do much better. They function much better. Yeah, within the eyelid, there's probably cell-to-cell signaling and coordination 
you know, even though they have different jobs, I mean, there's probably some there signaling. Why would they be clustered? There is. There is. They speak to, to, to each other. They, they regulate uh, one another. And, and that's why, um, you know, you want to have this, you know, desires to recapitulate as accurately as possible what happens in nature, which is not always possible. But I guess that the main theme here that we are um, observing is that even though it's not perfect, it may work well enough, uh, you know, if you transplant enough cells. Let's say that these cells are not perfect and they are, they are, they are only 60% of what a real islet would do. But still, you know, if you put more cells, then you get the same function at the end of the day. So, uh, you know, there's two ways of approaching this. One is the brute force approach, put more cells to get the function that you need. And the other is to actually mimic it so that it looks exactly like a real island and you need only as many as you need uh, to transplant. Oh, right. so, one second here. So when I, and someone with type 1, what is destroyed? Is the entire islet destroyed or just the beta cells within the islet destroyed? No, it's, 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 it's there mostly the beta cells. It's, this is very selective for beta cells. However, uh, the attack of the immune system to the islet is very uh, drastic. And you have a lot of infiltration, which is the invasion of the immune cells, the T cells that are killing the beta cells. And there's a lot of, of inflammation going on. So uh, that region, I mean, even though you are killing only the islets, there's a lot of... Uh, you know, bystander casualties as well. So uh, when the immune system does its job, uh, at the end of the day, you end up with a cell of what it used to be an islet. Sure, you may have some glucagon expressing cells in there and a few other cells, but there has been a lot of damage in uh, civilian <laughs> targets as well, if you will. Well, the reason why I ask you is if you reconstruct all the cell types and not just beta cells, where they turn into all these cell types, and let's say, like you said, one of them produces glucagon, if you make enough of them and you implant them into somebody, you know, what if they still have substantial glucagon production ability? And now with these new cells, they can produce too much of it. And it's kind of out of balance with, you know, yes, now they can produce insulin, which is wonderful. But maybe now, again, there's just too many cells that can produce glucagon. So it throws that out of whack. That's a very interesting question. But um, fortunately, it seems that uh, what we learned after many years of studying the highlights is that they regulate uh, in, exquisite, in an exquisite manner. So they produce uh, only as much of the hormone as it, is, as it is necessary. So going back to your scenario, when you have more glucagon cells than you should, they're going to produce on a per cell basis less glucagon than they would otherwise. So, and they're sensing continuously the levels of sugar in the blood. They are sensing that and they're making only as much as needed. And that's in fact the uh, main problem that we have with all the technological advances to treat type 1 diabetes when it comes to um, the pumps, uh, the sensors and everything, we cannot mimic with a pump uh, the uh, regulation that we have in nature where you only produce as much as, as, uh, of these hormones as you need. With a pump, you're always producing the same amount of insulin and that's not what the body necessarily requires, right? And now we have sensors that are trying to uh, talk to, to the pump and and tell the pump how much insulin he has to produce. But the body does this naturally. So um, going back to your question, uh, if, you put, if you put a lot of insulin in a person, you can kill the person. But if you put a lot of beta cells, you're not going to kill that person necessarily because the beta cells are going to produce less insulin on a per cell basis. Well, so what, what happens in someone with type 1 diabetes? Like, you know, the, it sounds like the beta cells are preferentially killed, but that would still leave an abundance of glucagon producing and other you know, peptide-producing cells. And so do they get down-regulated 
because now there's there's not the balance of insulin to regulate their their expression like has that been even looked at yeah i mean it's, it's difficult to look at this in patients obviously because there's no way that we can analyze what's going on uh, even though again even though you still have glucagon positive cells uh, there has been a lot of damage and they don't easily uh, come back to life uh, if you will so what we've noticed is that Many patients, after many years of having type 1 diabetes, they lose their ability to sense uh, low sugar levels. That's what we call hypoglycemia unawareness. So that's what happens when you are driving and uh, you don't feel that your sugar levels are going low and suddenly you pass out and you have an accident, right? So the good thing when you still have some alpha cells is that you have this awareness of, of uh, you know, your sugar levels going low. And uh, that is lost, uh, uh, you know, after many years of the disease, many, many uh, times. And what the good thing about islet transplantation is when we transplant islets, you're transplanting not only the beta cells, but also lots of alpha cells. And what happens in these patients is that, obviously, when you transplant the islets, you get back to normal, you don't need insulin. But sometimes, because you transplant very few islets, the patients end up not uh, having enough cells uh, to make insulin and Eventually, all the beta cells die as well, and they have to go back to receiving insulin. However, even in those cases, because of the beta cells that you transplanted, I mean, the alpha cells that you transplanted, these patients recover the hypoglycemia awareness. So they can feel again that the sugar levels are going low, and they can act upon that, right? So, um, yes, the alpha cells are responsible for you to be aware of that sugar levels going low, and you tend to lose that simply because, you know, the damage has been very, very strong when you have the autoimmune attack. And then eventually you also lose a lot of these alpha cells. But you can recover that uh, to a significant extent when you get an eyelid transplantation because of the alpha cells that you're putting as well in there. Mm, okay. Interesting. Well, I guess you covered a lot of the questions already. You said you used to put them in the liver capsule, but that was problematic. And now you're putting them in part of the peritoneum that's has a lot of blood supply and that may work better, et cetera. So that's good. Um, right. The, the, the liver is actually not in the capsule of the liver. Uh, we oh. put them in the portal vein. So we put oh, a okay. catheter in the portal vein and the islets fall there. They, they lodge eventually in a smaller blood vessels. And uh, you know, eventually you, they grow new, you know, micro vessels and they, they thrive in there. But in the process, many of them create clots and, uh, and many of them die because islets don't like to be in contact with blood. Islets um, make a protein in the surface called tissue factor, which is a clotting agent. So that elicits a response of the blood that kills many of them within minutes of you putting them in there. So that's really a brute force approach. Again, 80% may die within minutes of you putting them into the bloodstream. So clearly that's not what we want. Whereas the peritoneum, it's a place that that doesn't happen. I mean, it's irrigated by blood, uh, but it's not actually, you know, putting the alice in the blood. And uh, it seems to be a much more controlled site. So, yeah, that's, that's what we are. We're trying to avoid the liver. But it has worked uh, for quite some time. It tells you it's a testament of how strong these beta cells are, that even if they they die in scores, you know, they, the few ones that you are left with, they still are able to do the job for quite some time. So... Uh, it's remarkable. Yeah, there's something interesting you just brought up. It might be a little bit off topic, but if someone has like hemorrhagic pancreatitis, I, you know, I don't know if you've ever encountered it, but I guess it's rare. And there's blood in the pancreas. Are you saying that, uh, or would it be that that would like severely damage the beta cells and cause massive beta cell die off because they're exposed to blood? 
Well, it may may very well be. I don't know. But what I'm telling you is that when something bad happens to the pancreas, it doesn't matter whether you have beta cell or something else. Everything is going to suffer. I mean, there's a lot of inflammation going on, and pancreatitis is just one step away. And I would say that pancreatitis is a much more a much more dire situation, uh, and it poses a risk to the life of the patient immediately, much more than type one diabetes in the long run. So. Uh, you know, if you have hemorrhagic uh, uh, pancreatitis or something like that, I think that you have other problems to worry about other than the beta cells at that time. I just wonder if you, if you know, just, I don't know, if you survive it uh, later on, if right. maybe, that, maybe that's, it predisposes you to uh, type 1 diabetes because maybe there's beta cell die-off. That's why I asked. Right, right. It may happen even though... Uh, well, it's, it's, you may argue that it's not even if you get the beta cells if they are dying... Um, they are not dying because of, auto- of an autoimmune disease, um, which is a different uh, presentation of the, the disease, if you will. However, you know, you may make the case that inflammation and all these things that happen sometimes trigger autoimmune responses uh, in people who are genetically predisposed. Uh, you, you raise a point that is, is valid and it would, could be interesting to look at. I don't think that we encounter enough of these patients to look at them. Uh, as it is, we... we we are very limited in our ability to look at the pancreas of type 1 diabetic patients. Um, so even those, we, are, we have difficulty getting in the tissues. So in very rare diseases, who knows what may happen, but what you, you, you raise a very valid, valid and, and plausible point. It may happen. Who knows? Hmm. From here, what's, what's your biggest obstacles? Is it the um, immune suppression or... Uh, yeah. You know, what is it that from here that's, uh, again, the biggest obstacle is to making this successful long-term where the patient can still be healthy? Right. So um, all these transplantation approaches that I mentioned to you, they are now looking at the possibility of transplanting the cells um, inside what they call an immune isolation device, and that's designed to prevent the attack of the immune system. So that's not a cure. You're not doing anything about the immune system. You're simply applying a physical barrier between the beta cells and uh, the immune system. And I don't think that the state of the art is, is, uh, has gotten to a point where you can say that this is going to work forever. I think that the, the prevailing view is one where uh, you may get these cells that are protected to survive for a few months, but then you have the ability to go back to the clinic and get another transplant, uh, you know, because it is under the skin. It's not like you have to, uh, you know, do something very major or anything. You simply get another uh, you know, supplement of of, of uh, beta cells that come from stem cells every six months. And if you have, don't have to worry about you know, pricking your fingers or injecting insulin for six months, that's a much better situation than what patients have right now. And that's not a cure, obviously. What we want to achieve at the Diabetes Research Institute is a cure, something that you do once and that's it. And for that, there's no other way around it than uh, to stop autoimmunity. So you have to stop the immune attack from happening. And uh, that's why we are looking at a combination therapy where uh, we stop our immunity by uh, modifying or modulating the immune system, restoring the natural balance of the immune system. And that's, that's easier said than done, obviously, because at the end of the day, uh, it's not only a matter of autoimmunity, it's also uh, cancer. You know, most of the diseases that we can think of, that's an imbalance of the immune system, right? So you, you have the yin and yang of autoimmunity and cancer. And in both cases, what you want to do is to modulate the immune system to restore the natural balance. So that in one case, you kill the cells that are growing in a, in a, in a manner that they shouldn't. 
and in the other, you preserve the cells that shouldn't be killed. So in both cases, you have a malfunction of the immune system. So we are developing all these immune therapies for one uh, approach and the other, I mean, for autoimmunity and for cancer. And eventually, uh, we think that the knowledge that we have right now and the fact that we are having lots of pieces that are falling in place, it will take us to a point where we can modulate the immune system without immune suppressing the patient, because we don't want immune suppression either, and we may be able to stop our immunity uh, from happening. And, and there are clinical trials that are looking at this right now for diabetes, but also for many other autoimmune diseases. So that's a good thing. Um, autoimmune diseases all have the same roots. So something that works for one is likely to work for another. Now we have one clinical trial that has been approved by the FDA in which we are going to give the patients uh, low-dose IL-2. And this is a kind, uh, cytokine that improves or the response of the cells that protect the islands, right? And um, in general, it brings up the, uh, uh, the function and the uh, power of the good arm of the immune system in the context of autoimmunity. And has been tested in other diseases, autoimmune diseases, and it works. So one of them is alopecia areata, a disease where the patients lose their hair, and it's an autoimmune uh, boldness, right? So they give these patients IL-2 in low dose and the hair grows back. So we think that something like this may actually uh, do the trick for type 1 diabetes. But even if you do that, unless it happens immediately after diagnosis when you still have some residual beta cells, even if you do that uh, later um, in, in life, you may not have enough beta cells. And uh, I always mentioned that we encountered a patient once that uh, had to undergo a bone marrow transplant for many autoimmune diseases. And uh, type 1 diabetes was just one of them, right? And after he received a bone marrow transplant from his sister, uh, he got a brand new immune system. He got cured of all the autoimmune diseases that he had, with the exception of diabetes. Why? Well, because there's no more autoimmune attacks, but there's no more beta cells either. So that's why we want to do a combination therapy where we stop autoimmunity but we also give a boost to the pancreas where the stem cells that are in there give rise to new beta cells. So that's what we are trying to achieve right now. Yeah, it's complicated. Has anyone contemplated doing like a patch where you'd have, um, you know, the beta cells in like a patch that you put on the skin and they act as a reserve and, you know, maybe there's a barrier to prevent an immune response and they last for, I don't know, three weeks or something and then you replace the patch and you can, well, you can have function that way. Yeah, that would be great, wouldn't it? Uh, the patch, yeah. unfortunately, the, I mean, the, the patch that we are thinking about, that we are using in clinical trials, is actually under the skin. So it's not a patch. It's something that you put under the skin. And the reason for that is that you need the cells to be vascularized. You need the cells that cannot live outside the body. They need a blood supply, right? So that's why um, you cannot do a patch outside the skin. It would be fantastic, but... Uh, it's not feasible. So, but however, we, we think that it may be possible, even though the skin is not the best place to put these cells. It takes a while for the, the skin to be, I mean, to allow the vascularization of these cells. But it may be good enough because it's not invasive. I mean, it's not that invasive compared to transplantation in the liver or the omentum or in other places that we have discussed. So, you can also envision, as I mentioned before, the patient going back to the clinic every six months and, you know, just getting a minor. Uh, procedure and removing the, uh, you know, the implants under the skin and putting new ones. That's something that I, I see happening uh, within the next uh, 10 years. That's something that is a real possibility. I mean, uh, one of the companies that has been pioneering this approach, Biocytes, um, and uh, another one, Sema uh, Therapeutics, uh, they have invested 
uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in these approaches. And now we have Big Pharma uh, backing them. Uh, one of them uh, uh, was acquired recently by Vertex Pharmaceuticals. So when you have Big Pharma behind these approaches, it means that you know they 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 smell the uh, the ability to implement this into patients, right? So uh, it's going to happen. It's not going to be a cure. And as you said earlier, you may have you know, the patients may have to come back to the clinic every few months. Um, for a replacement that keeps them in business and the patients are relatively happy because, you know, they can forget about diabetes for a few months, which is no small feat uh, compared to what they have right now. So uh, I think that we are going to see these things happening within the next few years. The cure may take a bit longer, but I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, when we develop it, by that time, the, the standard of care is going to be so good that, uh, you know, it's not going to be a breakthrough at the time. It's not going to be perceived as a breakthrough, perhaps, but rather a natural continuation of the things that we've been achieving uh, little by little. Very good. So, Juan, what's, what's the best way for people to find out more about you and your work? Well, um, I think that the listeners can go to our website. Uh, it's www.diabetesresearch.org. ORG, so it's not difficult, it's diabetes research, and we are going to be the first one uh, that appears in there, and that's our institute's um, uh, website, and there we describe all the clinical trials that are going on and all the research that is going on for uh, both uh, immune modulation, immune therapies, and, and uh, stem cell research, and uh, they can uh, look for information on how to enroll in clinical trials and get a lot of background information that they want, and certainly... One of the things that we do in my place in the Diabetes Research Institute, we welcome uh, patients and, and uh, anyone who wants to visit the place. The foundation arranges tours for them, and we uh, we stop everything that we are doing when we have a tour, and we show them around in the lab, and it's really nice because actually we see lots of patients, um, mostly children, unfortunately, but they get to see the cells that we are growing and uh, and uh, it's good for them because they and the parents because they, they get hope from what we do. Uh, it's also good for us because we always, you know, it's good for us to have put a face on the disease because everything then, everything that we do has a higher meaning uh, after that. So we encourage you to come here to Miami anytime that, that you are visiting Miami, uh, just call the Diabetes Research Institute and they will arrange a tour for you and um, we'll be here for you. Very good. Juan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you very much. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.